my sermon title this morning is Doing Right When You've Been Done Wrong. Doing Right When You've Been Done Wrong. And I'm coming from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. Um, you remember we finished James chapter 5, 1 through 6, about the warning to the rich, uh, those folks who were unbelievers and in uh, cheating the, the poor Christians around them were causing them to struggle to make ends meet. This is actually the second part of, uh, of that section, and so we need to treat it as such. Um, and so just kind of something for us to keep in mind as we move through our study time together. You know, there's a, a lot of people in this room this morning, and uh, in a group this size, there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of things about us that make us unique. Uh, but there's one thing that all of us have in common I would say, if you've lived longer uh, than a couple of years of life, there's one thing we all have in common, and it is this. We have all had someone in our lives do us wrong, haven't we? And we've probably all been on the other end of that where we've done someone else wrong. We know what it is uh, to slight someone, to hurt them, but everyone in this morning, in this room this morning, has probably experienced a time in your life when someone has flat done you wrong and you knew it and you were just weighing out what should my response be how do I act uh, at this point someone double crossed you at work someone stabbed you in the back in your circle of friends and was talking about you someone drug your good name through the mud or maybe they uh, made a promise and uh, they didn't keep it maybe they didn't keep it intentionally maybe it's the 87th promise they've made and you have seen 87 promises broken the question before you this morning is this. How do you handle that situation? When someone has done you very wrong, how did you handle it? Or how are you handling it this morning? Because for some of you in this place this morning, this is not a past tense uh, situation. For some of you this morning in this place, this is a, a present reality for you today. And you sit here this morning as I'm describing uh, this commonality that we all have. And your mind drifts back to a few days ago or this morning even. When someone did something or said something or hurt you. Left some scars and left some wounds. And you're trying to figure out how do I deal with this. That's the tension I want to introduce this morning. I want to say to you that James in chapter 5 is going to resolve that tension through the scripture, if we'll hang with uh, the text this morning. James is going to give us four action steps that he's going to highlight for how we can do wrong, do right, when we've been done wrong. Four action steps that we'll see in the text this morning. So the first action step we find is in verse 7. First action step is this. Trust God with what you can't, with what you can't control. Trust God with what you can't control. Look at verse 7. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So remember, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, there were poor workers, these day laborers, who were being cheated out of their daily wages. They were supposed to bring home money to afford food for the evening, for their families to eat. And they were being cheated out of their wages by some ungodly and wealthy landowners. And so they had no money. So there was nothing they could do. They had no money to file a lawsuit because their primary concern was how is my family going to eat uh, this evening. So the harsh reality was this. 
They had to face this situation day in and day out, basically with their hands tied behind their back. There was absolutely nothing they could do to change their situation but to trust it into God's capable hands. All they could do was to call on God and wait on His help to arrive. I've been reading a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. I would highly recommend that book too. If you're looking for a good book to read on prayer and spiritual awakening, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. And he talks about how their church was built off of just a handful of people at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. A handful of people built off of those committed to calling out to God. And just waiting and watching Him act. Calling out to the Lord and and waiting for Him to do something on their behalf. Some of you probably remember the show from 20 years ago or so. I guess it was maybe 25 years ago now. It's called Rescue 911. Does anybody remember that show? I think William Shatner hosted that show. It came on Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock, if I'm not wrong. And I was fascinated by Rescue 911. Now, I could never, ever work in uh, the medical field in any way. So those of you who do, you have family members, I have the utmost respect uh, for you. I go to the hospital quite frequently, and I stand in awe because I just think I could never do something like run an IV, much less do what Rescue 911 workers do. And you remember, there's always the phone call that comes in and somebody's panicking and they've got a situation where they need help. Basically, they are helpless to do anything for themselves. And what they are forced to do is to call on someone else to step into the situation that can intervene and change the outcome of their present circumstance. That's exactly what's going on right here. The people in this situation have no recourse They have no alternative. All they can do is call out to God and trust that in God's timing, He's going to take care of them. Look at verse 7. James gives them the first command. Be patient. And I love what he does. He brings this command to life by telling them, look out your kitchen window. Look right outside your kitchen window. Look at the farmer. Watch him. Watch how he works faithfully. He digs his hand in that bag. He scatters the seed. He does everything he can to get the ground ready. And then he waits. The farmer waits. Because there's nothing he can do to force his crop to grow. He can't stand over it and shake his fist at his crop. He can't grit his teeth at his tomatoes or his wheat or whatever it is he was growing and say, come on, let's go. I wanted to make a sandwich. Uh, My boys and I planted some little garden beds this year and I was amazed. I have forgotten how long it takes for one stinking tomato to come out. I mean, you want to pick that thing. I've got a two-year-old and and, and she has, I don't know how many green tomatoes have come off of these these plants. And, And yesterday she comes running around the house, supposed to be inside. She's got one in her hand and she's going... Daddy, daddy, it's red, it's red. (laughs) And I said, yes, it is. Bring it here. We're going to make a sandwich. It takes months for this to happen. We do everything we can to, to, to prepare the soil, to plant it, to take care of it. But we're forced to just wait and watch the crop grow. Do you know what the farmer's secret is? And this is going to apply in some of your situations right now. You're going to hear this and you're going to go, that's what I need right there. Here's the secret of the farmer. The farmer knows God is producing a harvest in my life. God is producing a harvest in my life. Can I see it all happening under the surface down there? No. 
Can I do anything to put my hands on that crop and make it happen faster? No. But God is faithfully at work in all the circumstances that you are in, under, around, and covered up by. And He is producing a harvest for His children. It's throughout the New Testament. I mean, I just had two cross-references come to mind immediately that I almost said at one time. And I don't know which one would have come out first. They were fighting to get out. But it's all throughout the New Testament that God is doing something great in the lives of His children. But we can't hurry God along, can we? We have to wait on God's timing. The dry season was June through September for these farmers. The dry season would come for a couple of months and leave the ground incredibly parched. But in October and November, the early rains came. And when the early rains came, it caused the seed to germinate. And then the seed would do its thing and the late rains in April and May of next year would come and then the plants would take root and they would begin to grow. You see, the farmer did all he could, but then he had to trust it into God's hands. Talk about trusting God with what you can't control. It was a part of this guy's everyday life. James says, look out the window and watch. This was an agrarian society. They all had examples around them of the farmer. They knew exactly what this was talking about. Look again at verse 7. It says, be patient when? Until the coming of the Lord. I love the way you read that scripture, Miss Pittman. That was beautiful. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. James could have said, just be patient. Just grin and bear it. You're going to get through it. He didn't say any of that. This is not an abstract exhortation to just hang on. This is look to a certain day. There's a day coming when all the wrong is going to be made right when Christ comes back. And he says, be patient until that day. I looked at another Bible that I have in my office that Carrie had picked up years ago. Somebody had preached on this text. And she wrote in the margin, stay put. That's what the word means. Stay put. Stay put. What do we want to do when the heat comes on and the pressure squeezes and someone does us wrong? We want to pack up. And run. We want to get as far away from that situation as we possibly can. You know what patient means? Stay put. I look out across this room and I know about some situations that some of you feel like you're limping through this morning. And you're struggling through and you're praying through and you're calling out to God on behalf of the circumstance around you that feels like the waves are washing into your boat and you can't bail water out fast enough and you feel like you're sinking. Stay put. Stay the course. Don't give up. You ever face a situation where you're not in control? Ten minutes ago, maybe. How miserable is it to run up against a situation in your life where you realize there's nothing I can really do about this situation? I talked to a mother last Sunday night at the baptism. uh, And I had her son in my children's ministry for a number of years. And now he's driving. And she said to me, you have no idea what this is like. She says, "This this is awful. 
And I mean, she was telling this thing dramatically. And she says, I have stomped a hole in the floorboard of my side of the car when he's over there driving. Some of you parents are nodding at me going, yeah, I had to get that repaired. How miserable is it to have no control? What does James say? The principle here, trust God with what you can't control. In the, in the Proverbs, I can't remember where, it talks about committing your, I think 16.3, committing your way to the Lord. You know what the word commit means? Take a ball and roll it away. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, unless somebody rolls it back to you, you don't have that thing in your hand anymore. When you roll your care away to the Lord, you know what He's not going to do? He's not going to take your care, your cause, your concern, your anxiety and roll it back to you. He doesn't. He says, cast them on me. Throw them on me. I will sustain you. We have to roll that thing to God and say, you know what? I can't hold this. I can't handle it. You're the only one that can. And you are not going to roll it back to me. You carry it for me. Trust God with what you can't control. Can I give you a promise from God's word, Isaiah 64, 4? Listen. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Has someone done you wrong this morning, this week, this year, this decade? And for 10 years or one year or two days, you've been stewing on how I'm going to get them back. Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Wait on God to act. Second action step, verse 8. James tells us, don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on your circumstance. Set your sights on Christ. Set your sights on Christ. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love the word, establish your hearts. In my study this week, I almost slammed the book shut, set it on the, on the desk, and just reveled in this one word. This is so good. If you miss everything else, get this one word. Establish is a rich word. It means to intentionally set something in a certain position. Intentionally set something in a certain position. You think about setting the clock in a certain position. Here's what I think about. The house we stayed at at the beach at Oak Island this past year. We go walking down the road to go to the beach. And about two houses from the beach, there is a house that has a black dog. And that thing's got to be this big. And man, that thing is terrifying. And I hate to walk by it. It scares me to death. Except for the fact that it's porcelain. It's fake. And if you walk up to that house at about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night and you're thinking, man, I'm going to clean this place out. You know, they're gone. They're not coming back. You get there and all of a sudden there's a large black dog that is intentionally set in that position staring at you. You're not going to kick the door in, are you? It's been intentionally placed there for a purpose. To accomplish an end. James says, establish your heart, put it in the position where when you face your hardship, you set your mind on Christ and His return. You look past your circumstance and you look at that finish line. How many of you watched the Olympics and saw people just going over these hurdles? Going over these hurdles. That's exactly what life is. We are going down this path and God has a finish line for us and we've got to keep our eyes fixed ahead. And we run that race and we go over those hurdles by God's help. But we look to the end and we don't get swallowed up with today. You know what happens if you get stuck focusing on your situation? Three things. Number one, 
you're going to get angry. Number two, you're going to be distracted. And then third, you're going to fall into sin. If you look at today, one of those three things or all three at the same time are going to happen in your life. Honor God by setting your mind on His coming. In a biography on D.L. Moody, I've been reading for far too long now. I need to get finished with. Moody says this. The biographer says that Moody was convinced that at any moment Christ would return to reign in glory. The biographer said Moody looked for Him every single day. Moody said it's the truth of the second coming of Christ that was used of God to get me out of the world. It's the truth of the second coming of Christ. I sat with some folks this week who were going through some difficulties and I just let my mind go past the situation in front of me and I thought about the fact it is a true statement that Jesus is coming back one day. Amen, church? What am I focusing on right now? Am I bent on my situation right here? Am I distracted or am I looking to that day? Can I say something here by way of application? Please hear me. This does not happen by accident. You don't establish your heart in Christ by accident. You don't wake up one morning and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm just fixed on Jesus today. I don't know how that happened. It must have been what I ate last night or something. I don't know. I'm just singing gospel songs and I'm praying and all of a sudden I'm giving all this. No, it doesn't happen by accident. You know what happens? It is a daily, disciplined, intentional retuning of our whole lives toward Christ and His kingdom. Every day. You have to retune that thing. You know why? It's like an old radio. I'm, I'm doing this because I'm picturing an old radio. They don't have, you push buttons now, but they had a dial on them, right? Some of you still probably have one. And, and, and I, I like to tune in and listen to the Tar Heels play. Amen? Amen. I like to tune in and listen to the Tar Heels play basketball. I'd rather listen to them as I had watch them. Sometimes because they blow games, but that's not the point. But you take that dial and you tune it into the right station, and, and you miss it just a little bit to the right. You've got to get back there to the left and get on that station. And that's exactly what happens. The world and the culture and the devil and the sin within us wants to retune your heart away from Christ. And you've got to tune it back in every single day. It's not going to happen by accident. Colossians 3 says, Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. Is that not convicting and challenging? For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all His glory. Establish your heart. Third action step. Stop criticizing and complaining about other believers. Go to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why would James have to say to a bunch of Christians, stop complaining about each other. Stop grumbling about your brothers in Christ. You know why? Because this is our natural go-to response. Some external pressure comes on and we turn on each other. It happens all the time in churches all over the place. James says, don't grumble. Don't give vent to whiny, critical feelings. The judge is at the door and he might walk in any minute. Let me give you a good test. You ready for this? Here's a good application test. Jot this down. If so-and-so 
were standing here observing my actions and my words, would I say or do that certain thing? If so or so, we're standing here observing my actions or words, would I say or do that certain thing? Even better, do I want to be saying and doing this when Christ returns? Do I want to be engaged in this activity? Do I want to be using this language? Do I want to be carrying on about someone in my church or another Christian brother or sister when Christ returns? Please listen to this statement. I've got it bolded in my notes. A critical spirit in a Christian is a crushing spirit in a church. A critical spirit in a Christian, one, is a crushing spirit in a church. Type in criticism in the church on Google this week. Do it. Type in criticism in the church on Google and watch everything that comes up. It is unreal the amount of criticism that goes on about each other from church parishioners to staff, from staff about staff to staff about church. It's just unbelievable how much criticism is taking place in God's family. Blogs and podcasts and articles all talk about it. Listen, when we do this, we are devouring ourselves. You say, how, how are we doing that? Well, I don't see anyone in this place this morning holding their right arm over here and just gnawing on your right arm. Nobody. I mean, that's ludicrous. Nobody would sit in this place and just, I don't care how hard you are, just gnaw on your forearm. Nobody does that. But the New Testament says we are all the body of Christ. So why are we going to complain and criticize and whine and carry on and distract from God's work by complaining about each other. That should not happen. This is one of Satan's most common weapons he uses to dismantle a church. You whine because it doesn't go your way. You gossip because you don't like the way they did a certain thing. You criticize somebody because you don't see eye to eye theologically with every little point. You cold shoulder them because you don't like something outwardly about them. Listen. If you're engaged in this right now, stop. Please stop. A critical spirit in one Christian can be a crushing collective spirit in a church. Verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord's compassionate and merciful. You talk about the Old Testament prophets, these guys had it rough. I've worked at fifth grade career fairs in this county now for, I don't know, seven or eight years, six, five, six years, whatever it is. If there was a table, and Eddie was there this past year, if, if there was a table that said Old Testament prophet, you would see zero goose egg fifth graders lined up at this table. Nobody grows up saying, man, I want to walk around naked for three years like Isaiah did. That sounds like a good plan. Nobody says, I want to be like Jeremiah. They beat him and they put him in the stocks and he was rejected and nobody listened to his preaching and that's what I want to do. Nobody would ever look at Jonah who had to go preach to his enemies, the Ninevites. They pulled your tongue out of your mouth, staked it to the ground and left you to rot and die in the sun. Who wants to have that preaching assignment? Not me. Or nobody wants to be Hosea. What did Hosea do? God said, I want you to go marry an unfaithful prostitute. And every time she runs off from you, and finds another man, I want you to go after her and bring her back. And go after her and bring her back because that's a picture of my love for my people Israel. Going after them and bringing them back. Look at Job. What happened in his story? He lost everything. Property, children, health, 
All he had left was a complaining wife who told him, curse God and die. How much does it help you to know that others have battled through the things you're going through? Is it not huge to have somebody come around you and put their arm around you and say, I'm here. I love you. I understand you. I'm not putting on some mask and acting like I'm up here and you're down here. I'm going to help you because I've walked through that valley and I've laid in that ditch and somebody come along and pulled me out of it by the spirit and the help of Jesus Christ and I'm here to support you today. How good is that? That's what we need. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Someone's done you wrong. Keep your eyes on Christ. Stop complaining about each other. And let God work it out. Fourth action step. Be simple in your speech. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. You ever been riding in a car and you're on the other side and you're looking out this window and all of a sudden the driver grabs the wheel and just goes, goes over to the left and your head slams into the window. That's what happens right here in verse 12. You're reading all these other things and all of a sudden James starts talking about speech and oaths and where does that come from? Here's what I think he's saying. The gist is this. The word swear is not talking about profanity. It's talking about taking an oath. He's saying be simple. Be straightforward in your speech. Be godly. And be direct the way you're talking. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. We'll give an account for every idle word we've spoken. And so the principle. Is be simple in your speech. I've shared this story before as I close my sermon this morning. I've shared this story with you before. But it immediately came to mind. And I thought man I kind of wish I'd have saved it. But it's worth retelling. Watchman Nee who was a Chinese evangelist. Tells of a Christian that he knew in China. He was a poor rice farmer. His fields were high up on a mountain and his fields were right beside the fields of an unbelieving rice farmer right below him. And so what he had to do every morning was get up and go fill his rice paddy full of water. Fill it up with water because if there was no standing water, the rice wouldn't grow. His income goes down. His family starves to death. And so he had to do this every single morning. Well, his unbelieving neighbor came along, discovered that he could get things done a lot easier if he would uh, loosen the dikes or, or turn loose the dikes of the Christian rice farmer, and the water would run downhill into his rice paddy. And so instead of working hard to fill his own rice paddy, he goes up, he removes the dikes, the water comes down the hill into his rice paddy, and things are, are going well for him. Well, at first, the Christian rice farmer just said, you know, I'm going to ignore it, and uh, maybe he'll stop doing this. And when it went on and on, he became desperate. Because now his income and his food on the table is being affected. So he goes to some Christian brothers and he says, Hey, listen, uh, I need to have prayer about this thing with you. I need to find a solution. And so they get together and they pray and they ask God, God, what would you have us to do here to help our brother? And here's what they came up with. Instead of retaliating, instead of threatening him, shaking his fist in his face, he gets up earlier than he was getting up and he fills up his unbelieving neighbor's rice paddy with water, fills it all the way up. And then he goes to his rice paddy higher up on the mountain and he fills that rice paddy up with water. His unbelieving neighbor would wake up in the morning and come out to his rice paddy and discover that someone had filled it with water. When he found out that it was his Christian neighbor who was doing this for him, even though he had been wronging him, he was overwhelmed. 
And he asked him, he said, why would you do this for me? He said, I've been doing something terrible to you, threatening your livelihood. Why would you do this for me? And he got to share the good news of Jesus Christ with that unbelieving neighbor. And that unbelieving neighbor gave his life to Jesus Christ because the Christian rice farmer refused to retaliate. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, he entrusted them into the hands of Almighty God and said, give me wisdom, Lord. And help me to know what you'd have me to do. How do we do right when we've been done wrong? Trust God with what you can't control. Establish your heart every day in Christ. Don't grumble against your Christian brothers and sisters. Be simple in your speech. I was thinking this week about a seven-day challenge that I thought this would be awesome for our church to pray. Seven days where you ask God, God, pinpoint one of these action steps. There's no way all four of them are going to happen, chances are. God, pinpoint one. Spotlight one that really needs to change in my life starting right now. And for seven days, by your spirit, through your help, through your indwelling and your filling, give me the power to work on that action step by the Spirit of God this week. That's what I want you to do this week. Take those four action steps. Ask God to show you one. Ask for His help to work on that one throughout the next seven days. After we pray in a moment, Emily's going to come and sing a song about waiting on God. Some of you this morning are waiting on God to act. Some of you, there's nothing you can do but wait on God. And you know what you need to hear from the Scripture? That's the best place to be, waiting on the Lord.